0: You know, a popular phrase that you will hear thrown around these days is, I'm all in. If I were to ask you, are you guys coming to Missions Sunday next week, you would all respond heartily, I'm all in, we'll be there. If you are asked about your football team or your basketball team, you would say, I'm all in this year, I'm going to every game. Even the away games, we're going, we're going to win the championship this year. I'm all in. Or if someone asks you to go play golf or go to dinner, I'm all in. You tell me when and where, and I'll be there. But what do we mean by all in? It means that you are fully committed. That you're going to say yes to this, you're going to say yes to this thing, and you're going to say no to other things in order to make it happen, that whatever it takes, all of your emotion, all of your energy, all of your resources, all of your time is spent in devotion to this cause or thing or person. I'm all in. What does it mean? What would it look like for us to be all in with God? For all of our devotion, all of our energy, all of our resources to be fully committed to God, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. There are no lack of resources that are available that can try to answer this question for you. You have books and podcasts and seminars and studies. How can I be more devoted to God? Our passage gives us an answer this morning, but it's probably not the answer that you would expect. So let's read our passage. I'm going to read Mark 12, verses 38 to 44. You might have Verses 35 to 37, I'm only going to read 38 to 44. So hear God's word to us this morning. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. They have the best seats in the synagogues and in the places of honored feast, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting in money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we look at this text today. You would open our eyes, unstop our ears, let us drop our defenses, and allow us to receive your word. And we pray that this text would be living and active for us, that you would give us humility, as we come to consider it today, that we would sit under your word and not above it in authority over it, that we would let it contradict us and correct us and rebuke us and assure us of who we are in Christ. And so now, Lord, take these words and use them for your glory. And We pray this through Christ. Amen. Let me start off by trying to disarm you a little bit. If you have been around uh, church for long, and you hear a passage like this read, I know what you were thinking. You're thinking, this is a stick-up. What's going to happen here is that the preacher's going to be up here, and it's going to fill me with a lot of guilt, and we're going to pass the offering plate three or four times until we get it Right? You're expecting me to unload a truckload of guilt about money and giving. And let me be as clear as I can be, this is not a stick-up. Guilt has never turned anyone into a cheerful giver. Only grace can do that. Jesus has some hard things to say about our money and possessions and our giving in this passage, but that's not his game. Jesus wants to show us our need. Jesus wants to show us who he is in this passage. And so I want us to drop what, most, what comes most naturally to us, and that is to be defensive when we hear a passage like this. And by the power of the Spirit that we're able to hear what Jesus has to say to us today. But let me set the context before we get into the passage that is before us. When Jason preached last week from Mark chapter 11, it was Monday of Holy Week. Jesus is headed to the cross. And in this passage and in the rest of Mark chapter 12, it's Tuesday of Holy Week. And you could best describe Jesus' Tuesday as a game of whack-a-mole. That when you read Mark 12, it's a series of challenges and oppositions to Jesus, and he hits one after the other. Or if you grew up in my generation and you grew up on WWF, this is like the Royal Rumble in chapter 12. Person after person comes up to Jesus to challenge him, and he throws them all over the proverbial top rope. It starts in chapter 11 when the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they challenge his authority. By what authority are you teaching? And then next, it's the unlikely tag team of the Pharisees and the Herodians. They try to trap Jesus by asking him a tax and finance question. Should we give money to Caesar? And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God's. After that, the Sadducees come up. They're asking him a question about marriage and the resurrection, and Jesus' answer is, the new world that is coming is going to be so great that the question you're worried about won't even matter. And next, the scribes come up to him in Mark 12. And they want to know which one of God's commandments is the greatest. And Mark says that Jesus' answer was so profound that no one else dared ask him any questions. They gave their best shot. Jesus has hushed their mouths. And that brings us to our passage this morning. In these verses, we have the final public teaching of Jesus. This is the last part of his public teaching. Ministry. And in verses 38 to 44, there are three things, three things that I want us to see about what does it mean, what does it look like for us to be all in with God. The first thing that we see is a bad example. The second is a good example. And then thirdly, we see the true example. So, bad, good, and true examples of being all in with God. The first thing we see is there's a bad example, but it comes with a twist because Every indication, every outward indication is that this bad example is actually a very good example. In verses 38 to 40, Jesus warns us of the scribes. They were these guys who liked to walk around with long flowing robes and like to be greeted in the marketplaces. They're a unique bunch, and I thought, what's a modern day equivalent to scribes? And the best that I can come up with is they're like Christian social media influencers, They are first-century influencers. Everything is about them. Everywhere they went, they wanted eyeballs on them. They were worried about their platform. They were worried uh, about having their followers know what they were doing. The robes they wore were stark white. They had elaborate tassels on the corners of their garments. There was flamboyance and gaudiness about what they were wearing it was custom when they walked into the public places, when they walked in the marketplace, that people would stop and they would pay their respects to the scribes who were walking in. When they got to the temple to worship, they would get the best seats. We think the best seats are in the back. And that day, the best seats were in the front so everyone could see them, see what they were wearing, so they could stand up and they could address the crowd. They got the best seat at the feast, they stood up and they gave long prayers. Eloquent prayers so that people would know how holy and spiritual they were. And later in the passage, we see that they loved it when people saw how much money they were giving. But what is common in Jesus' description of these scribes, everything is self-focused. It's all about appearance. It's all about the right look. It's all about getting the attention. It's all about the brand. Everything is done not for what it is, but for how it looks. But there's one statement that Jesus makes that kind of jumps off the page as you read it. He says, they want the best seats at feast and they devour widows' houses. And you think, well, that kind of escalated quickly, didn't it, Jesus? It goes from where you sit at church to now all of a sudden you're devouring widows' houses. What is Jesus referring to? Scholars have a lot of disagreement on this, but what is Uh, most clear is that Jesus is referring to the way that these men are gaining off of the very people they are to be helping. Scribes in that time, their livelihood existed out of the generosity of people giving to the temple. They made their money off of the religious industrial complex that was up and running at that time. They are the ones that rather than providing for the widows that they are to care for, they are the ones who are convincing them to give to support their lifestyles. These men give the appearance of being devoted to God, but they are really just devoted to themselves. The only thing that they are all in on is their own name, image, and likeness. Their outward actions are disconnected from the inner reality of their heart. And Jesus says that they will receive a harsher judgment, bringing harm to others in the name of of religion, with the appearance of godliness, brings the judgment of God. These men give a bad example of devotion to God. And they are a cautionary tale for those of us who can appear outwardly religious and godly. It causes us to ask ourselves, are we living with integrity do we show that we are trying to be all in with our outward actions, but while our hearts are twisted and crooked and self-consumed? But secondly, Jesus not only gives us a bad example, but he gives us a good example of someone who is, being, who is all in in their devotion to God. The difference couldn't be more vivid for us. It's a stark contrast uh, that uh, Mark draws out for us in this passage. Mark says that Jesus moved into the treasury He's still in the temple, but now he is in the court of women. Last week, when Jason preached, he was in the court of the Gentiles, the outer court, but now he's moved in one court into the court of women. And this is where, in the court of women, is where people would give their offering. So when they would come to worship at the temple, they would give their offering in this court. And so Jesus takes a seat on the court wall, and he's watching people as they're coming to worship. They're giving their offerings. And I want you to remember and try to imagine the scene that is before him. This is during the Passover. This is when the population of Jerusalem would swell to hundreds of thousands of people who had gathered for the festival. And so there are thousands of people who are going to the temple to worship and to give their offerings. And in the court of women, there are these 13 brass trumpets. They're shaped like the ram's horn. There are 13 trumpets, and those were the offering plates of, those of that day. And so they had a large opening at the top, and you would come, and you would drop your coins in the top, and you couldn't reach your hand down, so you couldn't steal someone else's offering. And remember that back then, coinage was the only currency that existed. There were no dollar bills. There were no checks. You didn't have a donor-advised fund. You didn't have appreciated stock that you could give. Uh, There were no credit card gifts. It was all coins. And so they came in, and they put their metal coins into a brass horn. And I belabor the point because I want you to get a sense of what it sounded like. What did it sound like when these people gave their offering? The rich would come in with their bags of coins, and they would Dump them in, and there would be a roar of coins. It's like the reverse of what happens in a casino when you hit the jackpot on the slot machine. You know, the lights start flashing, and everyone stops and looks, and you hear the bling, 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 thousands of coins dropping down. Everyone stops and looks. What happened? Who was the guy who won? How much did he win? It's a spectacle. The rich are coming up and they're doing the same thing. Look at that guy. How much do you think he gave? And all the while the rich are there soaking up the admiration of those who are looking at them. And Jesus contrasts the rich putting in their many coins with a poor widow. Imagine what it was like for her. You can imagine she sheepishly walks into the temple to worship. Her head is down. No one notices her. She doesn't talk to anyone. And so she quietly walks up, puts her hand in her purse, grabs her offering, and all you hear is a faint plink, plink, two small copper coins. In today's rates, she gave a fraction Of a penny. In dollars and cents, you couldn't give a smaller offering than what she gave. Though there were hundreds, maybe thousands of people who were gathered there to give their offerings, who does Jesus notice? Who does Jesus see? Jesus notices a woman who probably went unnoticed by everyone else there, who feels unseen and unnoticed, who feels unappreciated, who thinks she has nothing to offer. Jesus sees this woman, give her offering. And that might be where you are this morning, that you came in here, you sat alone. You feel invisible to the world around you. You feel unnoticed and unloved. You feel like you've got more liabilities and problems and issues than you do gifts and assets. I want you to know that Jesus sees you. That his heart is for you, that in his mind and heart you are loved and valued, that you are seen by him. It's interesting when you look at how Mark writes this passage, how everything that is written about the widow is written in terms of lack and scarcity and need. She's poor, she's alone, she's a widow. Notice even how they describe the coins she gives small coins. And she only gets two of them. No one is looking at her. No one is around her. But how are the rich described? Everything about the rich is described in excess and in abundance. There were a lot of them. that put in large sums. They gave out of their abundance. Everything about the rich says more. And everything about the widow says less. That is until Jesus does some divine accounting for us. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Truly I say to you, There are at least 72 times uh, in the Gospels that Jesus says, truly, I say to you. And each time, it's like Jesus is one, he's clapping his hands, he's saying, guys, listen up. What I'm about to tell you is important. Underline this, bold this, this is important, listen up. Jesus looks at them and says, truly, this woman has given more than everyone else. This poor widow has put in more than all of the rich people combined. As one pastor put it, Jesus held in his hands the balance scales of eternity. On one side, he emptied all of the contents of the 13 trumpets, the gold, the silver, the denarii, the shekels. And on the other side of the scales, he placed two small copper coins. And the massive load of the rich gave way to the eternal weight of the widow's offering. How can this be true? Everything in us says that the rich gave more and the widow gave less. But Jesus says, pay attention, there are some things about the kingdom that you need to know. There's things about economics in the kingdom that are not obvious to you. And Jesus gives us a finance lesson is what is the kingdom of God like? Here is what the economics are like in the kingdom of God. The first thing we see is that the only way that this can be true, the only way that what Jesus is saying can actually be true, is if God is the real owner of everything. That God owns absolutely everything. If you give me $10, your wealth decreases by $10 and my wealth increases by $10, but not with God. Our giving to God doesn't make God any richer. He doesn't need our gifts. He is the sovereign, eternal, unchangeable, almighty God. He stands in need of nothing. And he rules and reigns at all times. God is pleased sometimes to use our gifts for his purposes, but he in no way stands in need of them. If we were to stop giving, the plan of God is not thwarted in the slightest. If God were to have a personal balance sheet, the assets would read the entire universe. Everything belongs to him. There's not one square inch that does not belong to God. God owns every penny in my bank account. He owns every penny in your bank account as well heard a pastor talk about a saying that goes around in their church. Uh, it says, whenever someone in their church has an unexpected expense, you know, they, their car breaks down and it's a really expensive fix, or there's a major house repair that they need, or on the other hand, when someone comes into a large sum of money, they get a bonus." They get a gift that they were not expecting. In either case, what they say is, well, that sure is a funny thing for God to do with his money. My car needing a new transmission is a funny thing for God to do with his money. The car is his. My money is his. So I'm going to have to trust that God knows what he's doing with his money. I get a check in the mail. That's a funny thing for God to do with his money. It's his. For some reason, I have it now. What does God want me to do with this money? God is the owner. He gave it to me for a season, and he can do with it what he likes. And so for us to understand what Jesus is saying, our underlying presupposition must be that God owns everything. Anything we give to him is like me giving money to my kids to buy a birthday present for me. I am no richer for giving it, no poorer for giving it away. God owns everything. This passage also gives us a radically different view on how we are to measure. Not just that God owns it all, but how we are to measure our giving. Jesus does not measure our giving by the amount that is given, but by the amount that is left over after we give. His measuring is by proportion and not by amount. She gave all she had to live on, 100%. They gave out of their abundance. They had a lot left over, and she had zero left over. And I have to admit, I don't like this. I would rather this not be true. I'd rather take this out, because this is very convicting for me. One of the things that you see when you study charitable giving is that many times when our wealth increases, the percentage that we give away decreases. That is so insightful as to how the human heart works. We would hope that as God gives us more, that we would be freer to give away what God has given, that wealth would make us more generous. But in many cases, in many instances, that is not what is true. The more God gives, the more we keep. This passage is also an encouragement to those of us who don't think we have a lot of resources to give. The amount of the gift in this passage is irrelevant. The heart and the spirit behind the gift is what is in view here. Because Jesus reveals something that is true about all of us. That our hearts and our money are glued together. And we see this with God himself. That what God loves, God gives himself to that our giving follows what we love. Our giving follows our heart. Our giving reflects what we value most. Our giving reflects what we think is most beautiful and most most worthwhile. Our giving tells us what we are trusting in for security and happiness and well-being. But what God loves, God gives himself to. For God so loved the world that he gave. That whoever He gave His Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. God did not give His Son for us because He needed love. He possessed love. Out of the abundance of His love, He gave His Son. God doesn't give out of what He lacks, but out of what He abundantly possesses. God's love and God's giving are connected. We are made in the image of God and we are the same. We give ourselves to the things we love. The last thing that I want to point out regarding this woman's gift is that giving that is pleasing to Jesus is always downstream of faith. Or to say it another way, our giving flows from who we are in Christ and it is never the cause of our standing with him. This woman is comm- Jesus is commending this woman's faithful dependence and not the amount of her gift. He's saying look at her heart and look at her heart. Look at the trust and the dependence that I will provide for her. Her giving was an indication of what she loved, of her love and devotion to Jesus, that the outside matched the inside for her. And this is this good example of this poor widow only underscores what we have been learning over and over and over in the Gospel of Mark, that we connect to Jesus, we get to know Jesus. We understand Jesus not in our strength, but in our weakness. It doesn't seem like there's a week that goes by that whoever's preaching up here, we're preaching the gospel Mark, what, what are we saying over and over? You can be too big for Jesus, but you can't be too small. You can be too self-righteous or too self-important. You can be too selfish and too prideful, but you can't be too needy and too humble. Mark is telling us over and over in this gospel, it's the thing that has stuck out to me the most as we have looked at the gospel of Mark, that needy people understand Jesus. Jesus doesn't make sense to prideful and self-sufficient people. And so Jesus closes out his public teaching by singing the same old song. But we've heard him over and over again. If you want to be my disciple You've got to get in touch with your need. You've got to get in touch with your need of a Savior. But if the sermon ended here, if the sermon ended here, we would have a bad example and a good example. We would see how self-righteousness and self-centeredness are a stench in the nostrils of God. We would see how humble and simple dependence and faith are pleasing to God. Those things are true and good. We would have been given the law this is what God requires of us that all of life, that all of what we have is to be living, given and lived in dependence and service to God. We would know the path that we are to walk, but we would not have any ability to do it. Our natural instinct is to read a passage like this and to say, Well, I'm not all in with God. Obviously, there's something that is wrong with me, that I'm not as committed as I ought to be. I I don't give as much as I ought to give, and so therefore, I need to change. I need to become more committed. I need to be more devoted to God. That's true of me, probably true of you as well. But the question we are left with is how. How are you and I going to get there? How are we going to change? What is innate in us is what Dane Ortland says, that we try to crowbar our way into change. We try to leverage our strength and our ability into making us more godly. But do you see the fatal error in that way of thinking? To try to crowbar your way, to try to muscle your way into obedience is to become the exact thing that Jesus speaks against in this passage. Because to look at your own strength and to look at your own ability is to make it all about you. It is to become self-centered and self-consumed. If you are seeking after crowbar righteousness, you'll be burned out. You'll be constantly anxious. Am I doing enough? Am I all in enough with God? Have I given enough? You will be running on the treadmill of your own strength and ability. If the Bible were just an instruction manual for our self-improvement, then why would you and I need Jesus? If this is just about us getting better all the time, why did Jesus have to come at all? Because the fact is that you and I haven't and won't be able to do what God requires of us. And that is why we need a Savior. If real heart change is ever to occur in me and in you, it will not be by the strength and determination of our own will, but it will be by the work of the Spirit in and through us. What we need is more than a good example. We need a true example. We need more than an example to follow, more than go and do likewise, but we need someone who will give us what we cannot attain ourselves. Jesus ends this passage with the words, She put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You could paraphrase the original language by saying, she gave up her whole life. All she had was given. And that is just what Jesus is going to do just a few days later. This good example points us to Jesus, who is the true and better example. Because Jesus is the only one, the only one who would truly be all in He is the only one who would truly give up all that he had. Who would completely give his whole life. And because he gave it all, because he did it all, because he was perfectly obedient, all that he did is yours and mine by faith. When we trust in Jesus, his goodness, his performance, his righteousness, his sacrifice, His being all in is given to us. It's given to us in such a way that it's as if we had done those things ourselves. So what is our great assurance and hope? It is, not, it is not that we are going to be like this widow and be all in. That's not the point of the passage and that's not the point of the Bible. Our great assurance is not that you and I will be all in with God. Our assurance, our hope, is that Jesus was. Our hope is in him. Our security, our peace, our joy, our gratitude, our desire is all from him and in what he has done for us. Change will only occur in us when we look away from ourselves, and we look to Jesus, not when we try to muscle our way into change, I want to read the full quote from Dane Ortland that comes from his book, Deeper. This is what it says. You can't crowbar your way into change. You can only be melted. Reflection on the wonder of the gospel, that we are justified simply by looking away from self to the finished work of Christ on our behalf, that is what softens our hearts. The labor of sanctification becomes wonderfully calmed the gospel is what changes us, and only it can, because the gospel itself is telling us what is true of us before we ever begin to change, and no matter how slowly our change comes. We don't pry ourselves into change. We are melted. We are melted into change. We are changed when we know that we are loved apart from the fact that we are ever changed. We are, part, we are loved apart and absent of any change in our life. As this passage pushes us, as it makes us look at our giving, what I want to us to end with is by looking at the giver and not the gift. To look at Jesus, to know of who we are in him, to look and to exhale, to rest in Jesus, to know his heart for you and his care for you. And so as we come to the table, we see the same principle at work as we come to the table. We don't come to the table as the giver, but we come as those who have been given to. We come not as those who offer a sacrifice, but we come as those for whom a sacrifice has been offered once and for all. We come as those who are half-hearted in our devotion, become as those who aren't all in to feast and to celebrate the one who was and the one who will be our steadfast and sure hope for all of eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would use this word that in Your goodness and kindness to us that you would multiply it for your use and for our good. Lord, help us to know who we are in Jesus. We pray that your word uh, by your spirit would come and would remind us of what is true. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.